Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, along with Yvonne Osaretz. Hello. Coming to you from Wintergreen, Virginia. Beautiful place up in the mountains. Following the U.S. Open, episode 161. Before we talk a little about the U.S. Open, let's talk a little bit about fundraising. One comes to my mind is thank you for your support. What do you have to say, sir? Yeah, thank you for your support. We started uh, the campaign to join what we call a roster of people that w are willing to donate and help out. $10 a month is what we're asking. Um, don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think we have, we're up to around 20 people that are signed up for the roster, which is 20. great. Thank you. 20 is better than, better than 19. That's true. With um, aspirations to become a tennis teaching organization, maybe the smallest, but aspire to be the best. With fundraising, we need to try to do what we're doing, but do it better. You think of Andy Fitzell, editor. Takes a lot of time to do things right. Writer. Um, but what we'd really like to have is uh, the people that we train to teach tennis over the years be recruiters. and have. We just want to reach more people. We feel like what we're sharing is a value. And it's a lot of homework. It's carrying the torch of many, many proven tennis teachers from the past. Any other thoughts on fundraising? Not that comes to mind. No, just thank you. Thank you for the people that have donated, you know, the, the first few and hopefully more to come. Okay. Uh, let's go to the U S open broadcasting. There's a podcast and a broadcast. Um, that's your baby. You organize that. It was suggested many, many years ago, many by Brian Wilson, not Brian Wilson of the beach boys, but Brian Wilson of Illinois tennis called me up out of the blue and said that I should commentate during the matches. Mm -hmm. I know that you sat in on many matches where I, I commentate on the commentating, mm -hmm. but you put it together to me. It's, 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 you know, we reached, I think you said 40, 40 plus the first day and 70 plus the second time we did the women's final and the men's final. Um, I remember certainly sitting in on many PTR in this country Professional Tennis Registry, PTR, United States Professional Tennis Association, USBK. Sitting in as a, uh, a student or uh, conducting the lecture and to, to reach uh, 40 people, hopefully, uh, that was of some value. What are your thoughts on the broadcast? Uh, great. I, I think it's cool. You said it was my baby. Uh, we, were, we were sitting watching hockey actually one day and um before you mentioned something about commentating and then we were watching hockey uh, during the playoffs and we both looked at each other it's like these guys commentate way better and they could actually probably do a better job commenting commentating tennis matches than the commentators we have now and yeah so with the with the commentary if for those that don't know um, on the website there's just a page like any other page you just go to commentary it says when Steve's going to be live next. Um, we did it for the U.S. Open women's final, U.S. Open men's final. And there's a countdown when we're going to do it next. We haven't decided when we're going to do it next, but it seems positive. We've had good feedback. We've also recorded it. And so soon, it's not up yet, but soon we'll have the recordings up on the same page, on the commentary page of the website. You can go back, sync it up. If you want, just want to listen to it, or you can sync it up to 
your own video at home, the replay of the final. So hopefully that provides value for people. I certainly got some feedback. Um, a couple of people reached out and said I should have stats handed to me. That's actually something that um, we did as a group of dedicated tennis teachers back in the 80s for Bill Jacobson, who's the founder of CompuTennis, is several pro tournaments, you know, we would hand stats to, to the people speaking. Uh, I think that would be good. Also, I was told to announce the score because some people just listen to the commentary without watching. Yeah, that was surprising to me. He told me that. Whoa. I remember my son, Connor, I was playing on the tour and there's matches. Obviously, it wasn't the ATP. It would say he was playing challenger. And this is several years ago. You could just listen to the match. You, you couldn't, uh, it was just basically tennis radio. And it's, we go pretty much like this, the same player, not to mention player's name, but one of his doubles partners and so-and-so misses a backhand volley and so-and-so misses a backhand volley. It's really interesting to just hear it if you don't actually see it. Um, it's like listening for me growing up, listening to a hockey game. With that, when I used to train tennis teachers formerly in a college setting, you could go right up to the TV and darken the picture. And we would listen to say someone like Braden, just listen to him teach. Or then what we would do is um, bring the picture back up and turn the volume down. So you could just watch him teach, you know, watch the demos. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. With commentators, I, I certainly um, enjoy listening to the, to the, the tidbits, the insights. Um, I don't think there's a, enough learning. I don't think that the American public, I certainly have watched uh, televised matches in other countries, but I don't think the American public is really being educated that enough about the nuts and bolts, the X's and O's of tennis. Mm -hmm. What else on the broadcasting? Anything? Broadcasting? No, uh, just some information we couldn't do it where you know we have a video of you and watching it and talking kind of like a podcast because of rights it's, an, it's the espn i think owns the broadcast for the majors and we can't show that on the website and uh the it's it was risky because we still wanted to hear what the commentators were saying um so steve can comment on the commentators but, you know, we had to make it quiet so you can't hear it too much because we don't want to run into issues. But hopefully, hopefully it's all, that's all good. With commentating on matches, I do think way too much there's the off factor. The pros are pros. Are, the pros are great. Take your hat off to the pros. I mean, to just play in one ATP, one WTA match is, is quite an accomplishment. So don't want to come across as the armchair quarterback, but I do think in some ways there's a brain drain. There's a lack of information. I shouldn't say I think. I know there's a lack of information. Every level of tennis, from the grassroots, parks and rec, clubs, academies, high schools, colleges. Um, that doesn't mean there's not great people, but there's just a lack of tennis information. And I think I, I know... Uh, some of the information that we're sharing, it's, it's like a treasure. And 
it could be, you certainly could become a lost treasure. Yeah. I remember one of the podcasts you did a while ago with Ricardo Acioli, you guys talked about commentary came up and he expressed his hatred for American commentary. He was adamant about it. you know, he's very lively and, you know, I, I love being part of that podcast behind the camera, of course, but it was just, I had to listen to everything. You know, he's such a, such a character, but he, 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 uh, he commentary commentated, um, in Spanish, Spanish, I believe, um, when, back when, I don't remember when, but I remember he said that he did commentate and he didn't like the commentary, um, because it was very flimsy. It was very fluffy and it wasn't very concrete. Like you said, nothing, no nuts and bolts, no information. Yeah. Ricardo, I mean, he could do it in Spanish. He's trilingual, but he's from Brazil. So maybe, maybe it was in Portuguese. Um, with Raven Claussen, I spoke to quite a bit during the fortnight. He's still in the States for a couple more days. Uh, when he was a non-playing member, he was on the Davis Cup team, but not playing. You know, he did quite a bit of TV. Um, he's somebody who's played tennis at a very respectable level. I think getting to a Wimbledon final, Australian Open final in doubles, that's respectable. Yeah. But he's somebody who uh, I would say understands the nuts and bolts. Um, I was asking him about the pension. I remember one time telling him uh, about the pension. Yeah, certainly he was concerned. He, he, I don't know enough about it, but he was telling me that you don't, you can't collect your pension until you turn 50. I believe that's right. And um, it lasts for 20 years. Last time I asked him, uh, it was 55,000 roughly a year. You convert that to South African RAN, that's quite a bit of money. But I said, I think you need to be interested in a different set of numbers. Off the top of my head, I, I believe it's changed, but if you're not five consecutive years, but five years if you're in the top 100 in the world, and then doubles, it's five, not consecutive years, but five years if you're top 50. Um, it's where you can get a pension. It's tough. Yeah. And I understand that Roger Federer gets the same amount as everybody else. <laughs> I know that one time he had a contract for, uh, it was renegotiated, I believe. It was a million dollars a year with Wilson. I was told that uh, Nastasi a long time ago with Adidas said, I'll just take 350000 a year for life. That was a pretty smart, smart move. Yeah, at the US Open, the ESPN commentators, um, there was Eubanks, Chris Eubanks, and he's looking all sharp. And I, I love Eubanks, the way he talks is very eloquent. But, you know, he was playing challenges not too long ago. He got to the quarters of Wimbledon, I believe, remind me, yeah. And now they're inviting him to the booth to talk about, to commentate, to talk about stuff. And I feel like it's more about the image than the information. And it's... It's sad from one point of view where they're not educating the youth, especially in America since it's the U.S. Open. Um, nothing nothing against Chris Eubanks, but, you know, it's tough. Yeah, growing up in hockey uh, years ago, a gentleman by the name of Howie Meeker, uh, saw the intermission between the first and second period and the second and third periods and uh, jock talk. Uh, here at Wintergreen, we're getting organized. We haven't been here quite two months. But we will have uh, five different places where we can sit down with players where there's um, a TV, a whiteboard, and let's have a chalk talk. And you can actually go through most tennis clubs, tennis facilities. And, you know, there's not 
there's no chalk talk. There's no, okay, let's sit down and um, get the clipboard out, take some notes. That's always amazing to me because in other sports, you know, you just think about like say American football. All right, in here, everybody sit down. I'm going to break down film. With numbers, um, here's an interesting number from the U.S. Open. I believe this is accurate. I have to have our fact checker get on it. Mixed doubles, the winning team split 180 grand. And the winner of the singles, men and women, 50 years of equal pay, $3 million. I think that there should be more money in mixed. Those, you know, and they have to split that. So I think it was 90,000 each for the winning team. 45,000 for the losing team. That's that's almost as much as losing the first round of singles. That's amazing. With, um, and also too, I mean, the, the commissioner, I mean, or who's leading the way, don't think Mick should be no ad in a 10-point tiebreaker. Anytime you shorten the score, it's a greater chance of upset. Yeah, and it's less exciting. I mean, would you rather watch a, potential five set, you know, five and a half hour, six hour match between, you know, two players that have, you know, the, all the covers are about them. You look at any picture about the US Open, it's about them or, you know, at best two of three, 10 point tiebreaker, no ad. And I think they're just going down a different path, which is sad. Well, we do get into opinion. Uh, at the Labor Cup, it seems that it's scoring system you know, day one, day two, day three, how they've changed, how they set the points up. Uh, it's made great theater. I think the Labor Cup has been very successful. And a lot of it has to do with the short, shortening of the scoring system. But yeah, I mean, doubles is doubles. And if they're going to do it in women's doubles and men's doubles and mixed doubles, I think should just be played the same way. Principle. Um, with arguably the the five set match okay maybe doubles is, is is best of three but at least have it be regular scoring and not have it be a 10 point tiebreaker and i think it's un unfortunate that they're doing that throughout juniors um not not throughout the world but here in the u.s with um austin krychek i was pulling for austin not only pulling for austin but jessica bugula she's an upstate new york kid buffalo new york she actually went hats off to her she played three events years ago everybody it seemed like everybody played three events and we could get into uh what are the benefits of playing doubles uh, i know that unfortunately too that you know all that pounding on hard courts and the rackets the ball is traveling faster so it does take a greater toll on the body so there's there's always two sides to the coin but um juniors are definitely influenced by that the late Bobby Curtis at one time in Florida, one weekend a month was designated doubles tournaments only and people didn't play. So he fought for, for doubles, but, uh, his, uh, his efforts, uh, fell short, not because of what he did, but because people said, well, we just won't play that weekend. It's really sad that, uh, you know, men's open doubles. Um, well, on one thought on the mix, I did, did say on our broadcast, you know, some people might say we should sit in section F and shut up and eat popcorn, but Jeff Kotsir was coaching the other team. So we have these connections. Um, they run, pre run pretty deep and Jeff was 
someone who lived with us when he was a young kid and then someone who spent seven years with us, Craig Tiley had a, a great influence with uh, Jeff Quitzert. And he, he took the Colombian team. He's been with him for a long time where they have won majors and been number one. But going to the men's doubles, uh, hats off to Rajiv Ram. Yeah. Three, 39 years old. In a row. And uh, his doubles partner, I think like the backstory, I think, I think it was a year and a half. Salisbury was, couldn't play for a year and a half when he was younger because of medical reasons. I was told that when he played college tennis at the University of Memphis, he served and volleyed every ball. His, his college coach, Paul Gobel, he's been hired as a director of tennis, director of player development, perhaps, for uh, the nonprofit Tennis Memphis. Great guy. But I've been told by uh, you know a couple key people within that organization that he has embraced the great base. He sees how young kids are hitting the ball, and and he's in. It makes That's sense. Good. It makes That's sense good. to him. It's always good to have uh, reports like that. But um, Rajiv Ram, thirty nine years old. Mike Costa, another Illinois player, didn't play when um, Rajiv Ram played. He was a senior and graduated. Then Ram came in as a freshman, and um, Mike Costa, the comedian. You know, I think people in tennis have seen him on the Tennis Channel. Fuzzy yellow balls, mm-hmm. not fuzzy yellow balls, but whatever he's doing, it's it's fun and it's it's yellow. <laughs> he's in a yellow room, and with that, um, Rajiv Ram, he's so laid back, he's so chilled, he he yawns in between volleys. <laughs> With, uh, but actually the doubles, they played three times in a row. I mean, Dojic, who played with Krychek, um, you know, I watched that match and uh, Dojic, what a great athlete. I think if you roll a soccer ball out on the court, uh, he's, he's the best of that group. But obviously he's won majors and great, great, great doubles player. But the other three, I mean, that's a lesson for, for doubles with, uh, Jeev Ram is from Carmel, Indiana. Um, certainly I have been around his tennis. I never coached him for a second, but I actually fed balls to him when he was 14 years old, at the 14 nationals. I was coaching a kid by the name of Blake Wilmarth who went to Colgate and he was ranked one in the Midwest. Ram wasn't ranked one because he, you know, even though he's from Indiana, he wasn't playing enough tournaments to be ranked enough USTA sectional tournaments, however it goes. And it is forever changing how people are ranked. But um, he won that tournament. And I know the nickname he has is uh, Sampras. He just watched Sampras, but Rompras, Rompras. The, way, the way he serves, the way he plays. Smart guy. I used to, I've always said that, you know, who copied Sampras? The last time he played a match, he came to net 140 times and 104 times, 104 times in one match. And people, people weren't picking up on that. Um, so he played against Krychek. I know they won a tournament, I believe it was in Moscow where they won a title together, but now they're playing Davis Cup together. So, um, you know, someone's got to step up and take place for the Bryans. It's great to know that they have some certain volleyers because there was a Davis Cup match not too long ago where um, I believe Rajiv was number one in the world and they didn't put him on the team. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? Who makes those decisions? I think um, that was Marty Fish. 
Marty is no longer the captain. Maybe, maybe that was the person who made that decision. The U.S. Open is, um, it's amazing how people are so busy during the U.S. Open. It's, I feel like during majors, the world, the tennis world shuts down. One time I made the mistake of, okay, let's have a get together, little coaches get together in New York during the Open. And it doesn't work. I know the Tennessee Years Conference was very successful, but, um, you know, a smaller group and who's, who's you're, you know, in the, in the, you know, weeks in, not, not, I should say days into the tournament, you know, the, the teacher's conference was on the front side. Certainly some great tennis to watch on the front side, even just not necessarily the qualities, but even the practice sessions. But, um, you know, people are staying late. People are staying all over the city or outside of the city. It's very difficult to get people together. But I think also too, is that you can watch so much tennis during the open is that when it's over, you have withdrawals a little bit like, Oh, what am I going to do today? Yeah. Too bad we don't have a major being played every day. With, um, let's talk a little bit about stats. I have to throw this in. Wayne Gretzky, the great hockey player. Stats are for losers. You know, with uh, Gretzky said they were talking about goalies. And uh, I want to know who, I don't want to know the save percentage. I want to know how many, how many times they've won playoff games or how many times they won the Stanley cup. You know, so yeah, you can overdo anything, overdo stats. Okay. Let's go with stats. Uh, let's go with, um, I guess you'll back up. Rajiv Ram. I was in the in, in Indiana to meet Jeremy Wurtzman, the coach at Indiana. People could watch her course tennis intelligence applied and a young 11 year old Jeremy Wurtzman's hitting a slice backhand east and west and a backhand volley east and west. And you know, he went on and was ranked number one in the NCA. So he, I met him. He came up from Bloomington, I believe that's right, right, Bloomington, Indiana. And so we were at the Smith Academy, Brian Smith, his father, and there's this big Lincoln and um, tennis player, two tennis players are pushing it. And a little old lady stops and says, hey, hey guys, I've got a triple A card. I could help you out. And the, uh, the the kids pushing the car said, oh, thank you, but this is tennis fitness. <laughs> I mean, so uh, I, one time I was told they, were, they, they used a Home Depot, an abandoned Home Depot, and kids were taking lessons like at four in the morning. So uh, that's where he started his tennis. I know that we have some guests that we've mentioned that we're going to have but during the U.S. Open. Again, so busy is that uh, it's it's difficult to so, so ask someone. Well, let's not watch the U.S. Open and do a podcast. So we'll get back on track with some guests starting next week. Starting next week, I know Raven Raven Klaus and uh, um, we're scheduled to do one with Raven. We've done one with him before, but. Uh, that certainly would be fun. And there's others that are on our list. We appreciate, uh, I've asked so many people to be on the podcast and it's amazing. A lot of people said, yeah, I'll do it. Just a matter of getting it organized. Mm-hmm. Okay. With stats, let's go with, uh, the women's match. Coco Goff, the champion. What an athlete. Um, I think Brad Gilbert fired her up. 
when she, in her victory speech where she said, you know, uh, my critics have added fuel to the fire. I, I do know myself included. A lot of people would say, okay, on the forehand side, mm-hmm. um, but mom and dad, take your kids to the track, go find some stairs, go find some hills, go to the gym. Yeah. She's fit. Yeah. I'd love to see her play basketball. I know her dad was a basketball player. I'm sure she's good. I mean, and also playing basketball. It's like, yeah, it's fun to have a hoop, but just get out there and just do one-on-one drills, dribbling a basketball. Um, just the movement to stay nose to nose. Um, how's it go? Is uh, you know, you're gonna be so close to them, you're gonna know what flavor gum they're chewing. <laughs> you're not gonna give them any space. How many points were played? Let me ask a question. How many points were played in the women's match? Total points we have 157. 157. So, Coco Goff, how many times was she at the net? She was at the net a total of 10 times. 10 times. With your calculator, with your college education, what percentage of the points is that? Get you. The young man is pushing some buttons. 6.36%. 6.3%. She's holding the trophy, $3 million. I can't question the winner, but... Young people watching at home, you know, if you could turn the clock back, you know, Coco Goff, um, I think you could certainly argue that that's not a very high percentage. But I'm going to guess what percentage of the 6.3%, three, 6.3% time to the net, what percentage did she win? Let's do the math. So she came in 10 times, which how I many did she win? I don't think you she have won to three, seven of them, seven out of so, 10. Yeah. Maybe you could skip doing the math on that one. Okay. She won 70% of the points. 70% of the 6.36. Yeah. 70%. Roger Federer loses one time, first time to Nadal. I believe these numbers are accurate. Came in 17%, won 73%. So from section F with the popcorn. I think that he could increase the amount of times he came to the net and decrease the amount of points that he won. And I think what you have to do when you make a comment like that is say, what has Roger said? We started using tennis analytics in 2017. I was right. My dad said it was too chicken on the backhand. Hit the backhand. And they did change the grass on Roger. It'd be interesting to speculate if they didn't change the grass, making it slower. You know, who would have the most pagers mm-hmm. or how tennis would be played. It would, would it, you know, now they're playing the same way on all four surfaces or all four majors. I should say it's not four four different surfaces anymore. Um, it was Rubico, the Australian, the rubber ice surface they had. There was the French on clay, the English on grass, and the American on the uh, plexi pave, the hard court. With, how about her opponent, Sabalinka? Sabalinka, I like just even saying that. Sabalinka. Sabalinka. She came in 21, oh, net points, 21 times. The entire match, that's not the first set, the whole match. Whole match, 21 times. So 21 out of 157, 
you know, the pocket calculator. Now the telephone's a cal- calculator. The, the price went way down. When Bill Jacobson founded CompuTennis, the price never went down. It was $3,500, but the price never went down because so few people bought it. I believe he sold less than 200 units. I know that he gave two away to very highly regarded coaches who never even turned it on. I got the number. Yes, sir. 13.37%. So she came in 13% of the time. And what was her winning percentage? She came in 21 times, won 13 of them, 62%. 62%. So still, I mean, if you come in and you win two out of three, we always tell people four out of six, eight out of 12, aggressive air margin. That comes from Jacobson. You win 6060. But to put pressure on the players, take time and space away. If you win points in three ways, plus plus is a winner, minus minus is an unforced error, minus F, a forced error. Um, you can make a boatload of errors, but if you could make them where you're forcing, pressuring uh, someone to miss, um, I think when you sit and watch a match, are they playing an approach out with the idea that they're going to volley? With um, Let's go with a few more things. Uh, let's turn to the, the men's match. Well, actually, let's stay with unforced errors on that for a minute. I looked at one stat is uh, I thought that Coco made more errors. But you have down that she made 19, right? Let's see. Unforced unforced errors. Okay. Of course, it depends on who's who's charting it. But here it says total unforced errors, 19 for Goff, and it says 46 for Sabalenka. Now, with that, they, they're, with that printout, I looked at that, as I said briefly, where um, many times you'll just see the winner to error ratio. So it's winner and unforced error. They don't really put down what's forcing. Forced, yeah. So um, of the 19, you know, how many were forehands? Does it have that? Doesn't. Let me double check. One thing I wanted to mention with these stats, these stats were taken off straight from the US Open website. If we get more organized, we can have people um, in the room with you when you're commentating, commentating so they can chart it and then they can give you those stats. And, you know, again, it's 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 biased because it depends, especially on unforced errors, what's an unforced error. Well, charting, uh, one of our pillars, Jim Burdick, he charted himself. Um, you know, I actually could chart and commentate at the same time. But yeah, it's, as you mentioned, uh, what's, what's, you know, the charter A, charter B, you know, Tom says it's a unforced air and Bill says it's not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's very interesting. You know, how many times did they miss wide? How many times did they miss in the net? How many times did they miss long? Yeah. I don't got, I, I don't have where they hit, but they do provide stats for unforced airs, forehand or backhand. Um, and really all the shots, approach shot, drop shot. So, uh, for example, Sabalenka, 46, uh, excuse me, 26 forehand unforced errors and 10 backhand unforced errors. And one backhand drop shot error, one forehand approach shot error. So there's some interesting stats here. I do think that with junior tennis players, you know, with, you know, keep your ego at jack into criticizing the pros. They're the ones that have worked so hard. They're the ones that are out there with, but say in football, 
fumble. Um, you, you know, with Coco Goff at 19 and Sabalink at 46, I don't think you could say that was ni- 19 fumbles. You know, in a football game, you know, maybe there's two or three fumbles, but whatever number it is, uh, an interception would be another, a turnover. You turn the ball over and now you're, you're not in position to score, but the other person is. In tennis, you can score on every point. With, but yeah, Jim Verdict, put your brains down. Okay, what's really happening out there? And, um, you know, that's where, with parents listening, how your child plays when they're 10, it's pretty much how they're going to play when they're 11 and you keep going forward. And it's, that's pretty much how they're going to play. So it's very important early on to de-emphasize winning, emphasize playing an all-court game, reward people for going forward and being in that point in any situation with the number of certain volleys. I don't believe there was one point in the women's match where it was a certain volley. The, I don't believe there was one point where someone took a second serve and came in. So again, hats off to these two gals. I mean, I think you have to look at it and say, well, the physicality and then also the mental part. Okay. They're athletes, you know, athlete and a tennis player. And you know, I think with, uh, say, Coco Goff, she's holding the trophy. She's three in the world. Again, great, great, great. But I know that you speak Russian a little better than, than I do. How do you pronounce Rybakina's name? That was very good, yeah. Elena Rybakina. Say that one more time. Elena Rybakina. That's so, that's so good you say it a third time. Elena Rybakina. That's pretty good. So... um <laughs> You say it well, though. You say it well. Yeah, that was luck. Can you imagine taking Coco Goff's mobility, you know, the three M's, mind, mobility, and mechanics. Take her mobility, and then you give it to Rybakina. I mean, it's like, wow. And, but, but again, it's not a matter of, we're not coming across where, well, one needs to totally change their game, revamp their game. Um, with... Um, you know, let's go to the men. Let's go to the men. Just talk about the same uh, points with uh, net appearances and unforced errors. All right. Well, net appearances, 44 for Djokovic, 22 for Medvedev. Okay, but we had, we had said it again. So you have how many for the... Uh, for Djokovic, he came to the net 44 times. Medvedev came 22. Okay, so he came in twice as much. And that also, too, is that uh, does it count when someone's playing an approach shot and they hit a winner, do they call that? Or is it a net appearance if they get what we call inside the green zone, 10 and a half feet, you get to the midpoint um, of the service box. And then anything in front of that 10 and a half foot marker is a green zone. So how many points were played in the men's final? 215. Okay, so get out your calculator. Tell us uh, um, what percentage 44 is 215. Mm-hmm. Prove to us they have schools in California.
The clock is ticking. <laughs> just double checking. Just double, double checking. checking. 20, 20.4. 20.4. Okay, so you just reduce that in half that our, um, our boy Medvedev, the roadrunner, the modern day David Ferrer, so he's at 10.2. Mm-hmm. Let's go with a winning percentage for 24 majors. Novak Djokovic. For the for net points? Yeah, out of the 20% coming in, what did he win? He won 37 points out of the 44 that he came in, which is 84%. 84%. That's a pretty good number. Yep. Um, and boy, has he really improved his ability to volley. And he did hit some great stick volleys. That stick volley means you get hit by a stick. So, um, Mevedev, what did he win coming in? He got 16 of the 22 he came in, so 73%. So, all four players had a winning percentage, 70%, 63%, 84%, 73%. Do they know that? Are players managed by stats? Vic Braden, the person came to the net, in April, they got passed, and they're not going to come until <laughs> next April. Um, with then, how do they come to the net? You know, Dick Gould, I don't, a great coach from Stanford. I don't care how you get there, but get there twice a game. There are different ways to get to the net. Hardcore, um, with when you're serving on a hardcore and your opponents at the net. Um, not a good thing. When it's your serve, you should be the person who ends up going forward. You should end up being the person who is on offense. You start the point on offense. With Let's go with unforced errors with the boys. Men's match. We got 35 for Djokovic and 39 for Medvedev. They run that by us again? Djokovic, 35. Medvedev, 39. <laughs> Bless you. Gesundheit. Once I was riding on a train in Germany, myself and one other passenger, he's, he sneezed and I said, Gesundheit, and he said, where are you from in America? I thought I said that word very well over the years, Gesundheit. With um, 35 and 39, mm-hmm. then where were the errors made? How were the errors made? Um, but, but with the top players in the world, um, obviously – they make mistakes. Same thing. If you make a mistake, you don't correct it. You make a second mistake. Um, any thoughts on, on the stats? Just those those matches? Stats, yeah. The stats here we have return stats, serve stats. Very interesting how the fastest, they have fastest serve speed. Djokovic's fastest serve speed for the match was 126, the first serve. For the second uh, for the second serve, Djokovic's fastest first serve, excuse me, second serve speed was 107. For Medvedev, 105 was the fastest for the first. 108 was the fastest for the second. His fastest serve was again, please. So Medvedev's fastest first serve was 125. 125. Okay. And then fastest second was 108. So very simple, like the difference in is a one mile per hour in both of them. I'll bet that's just on fastest, but the average. I have average too. Go we got for first serve, uh, Djokovic's average first serve is 116. 
Djokovic's average second is 87. For Medvedev, average first is 118. Average second is 94. Yeah, so I, I just remember that number 82 coming up quite often when Djokovic was hitting the second serve. And I, men I mentioned that if um, Medvedev was more challenging, I certainly uh, would bet that uh, Djokovic also served better. Yeah, you, know, you just figured it out he's so far back, and I mean that one pattern hitting a slice serve wide in the deuce court and coming in, and he didn't really have have to play a you know a three shot combination when he served volley. He, he he played a just a, a routine. I mean, just could tap the ball in because his opponent was so far back. And when he's so far back, Djokovic has the opportunity to get so far in. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, but anyway, the U.S. Open, uh, what a celebration of tennis. Certainly many things to take away from it, but the champions of the singles with Novak Djokovic, flexibility, nutrition. It's just the fact that you know, what he does to be the best he can be. You know, I've said he's either stretching or thinking about stretching. And, um, and then with Coco Goff, um, I think that that should just be a wake up call, you know, and I, I think, okay, you know, we can be accused of beating up the commentators, but it certainly was shared about how athletic she is. I mean, I mean, the retrieving that she was doing from side to side. Yeah. Unbelievable. So you know, she's, she's lived her life to win. You know, I know that uh, her father is that you know, that he worked her, they worked so much on um, being an athlete when they were really young. And that that's a lesson to itself. I think another lesson should be is like, okay, we have to get kids playing multiple sports with um, Sabalenka is one in the world. And, you know, like say she, she, there's been a lot of written about how she improved her serve, which is great, but the high toss, she has that chain puller syndrome where she pulls down, the elbow uh, goes up, goes down, goes back up a second time. Um, I don't think that when she's playing an approach shot, she's looking to volley. And it's mm -hmm. like, um, and, you know, I think with juniors, um, are you going to be that genetically gifted, that big, that strong, that fast, that powerful, and look for every possible advantage that you can have with um, golf doesn't have the height, but it'd be pretty interesting to think, not to take anything away from Sabalenka, but I told many players that are short, and Coco Golf is by no means short, but um, I can name some women that are short. Great players, Rosie Cassell, Billie Jean King, Zena Garrison, you just go on. I mean, Justine Hennon. And, you know, so you have to go with their height plus their vertical jump. Yeah, I mean, I remember coaching a young boy, I won't mention his name. He's six foot five, but he couldn't jump over a popsicle stick. So he was six foot five. He wasn't going to jump and be six foot six. He couldn't get that high. So, um, yeah, with, uh, what else on the U.S. Open? U.S. Open, uh, a lot of respect for, you know, you mentioned I'm Russian, you had me pronounce Elena Rybakina. So I should be actually pronouncing 
um, the other Russian player's name correctly. It's actually Daniel Medvedev. He says it like that, just Say like it again. Daniel Medvedev. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck. It's but people have adopted Medvedev. I think he has just so same, same like most Russian players, like um, Shapovalov or Sharap Sharapova. People say. Um, I don't know. Very, very interesting. You know, listen to as a Russian, it's a running joke in my family. It's, it's amazing. American commentators, whenever there's a Russian player, they always, it's almost like it's on purpose or I don't know what it's about. They always mispronounce the name. Like uh, there hasn't been a Russian player where the American commentators said it correctly. Very, it's amazing. Smith, they can get that right. <laughs> they can get that one right. Well, um, we've talked about having a light podcast, give people a break. We had that one with for four hours. Um, let's just do this for a minute. But again, last round, anything on the on the USTA? US Open, you mean? Yeah. US uh, Open, yeah. See, there's a there's a cool stat here, distance covered. And then there's another stat, distance covered per point. Excuse me. So the Djokovic covered a distance of 18,000 feet and 17,000 feet from Medvedev, respectively. So you can do the math for if that hit a mile or not. It probably did. I don't know the conversion from feet to miles. But for distance covered per point, 84 feet. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, people say serve plus one, but you know they're hitting average rallies of six. I think it was. So Medvedev, again... Um, we're giving some praise to Coco Goff and for what she's done as an athlete, but really, uh, and, and, and Djokovic, of course, but the other two, um, obviously the work, but Medvedev junior tennis players chase every ball down. Why I say he's the modern day David Ferrer, they call David Ferrer, the dog peril. And Jimmy Connors was great at that. Just run behind, get your body behind the ball. And we tell juniors, even when the ball's out, don't look with your eyes. Movement, 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 you know, just moving your feet. And, you know, on the technical side, yeah, okay, there's a lot to be said about forehands and backhands. But if you went back to Mr. Hopman, you know, I think, okay, Maureen Connolly, 1953, she wins the Grand Slam. What she do? She hires Mr. Hopman. And I mean, he used to have players, um, all they have two sessions and they'd run 10 miles. They do that every time, but a lot of the time, whoever he thought worked the hardest to do this in the Marines is, you know, okay, if you're working really hard, okay, you can leave the workout, you can go shower, you can go shower. And then the person they don't think is working that hard, they leave out there the longest. But Mr. Hopman would pick one player to go have a beer with him while everybody else went and ran 10 miles. It was like a piece of cake. Go run 10 miles, it'll only take you an hour. I'll put an extra hour in. Um, I have so many people visit in the course of a year as a supplemental coach. Coaches send me players. And they may have outstanding, these players who visit may have outstanding physical trainers. But it's like, they should be fired. Just get the stopwatch out. And here in the U.S., most juniors, I mean, seriously... I mean, running a mile, oh, they don't, you know, tennis is an anaerobic sport. You don't have to do, do distance running. A mile is not a distance run. It's a mile. You know, it just, it's just amazing how little 
in American tennis overall that junior tennis players are running. Yeah, I, I remember a stat a couple of majors ago, Djokovic won it, and it was how much, how many miles throughout the whole championship did Djokovic run? And it was over a marathon, so over 26 miles in those seven matches he ran. Well, it's, it's, an, it's a marathon of sprints too. Yeah. With, he, you know, he, he looked fatigued a, a little bit, you know, Superman, Spider-Man, uh, age 36. You know, as a fan, I was hoping to see it go five sets and Medvedev, okay, let's win that second set tiebreaker. Um, but anyway, we've talked about doing this. Let's just do this for a few minutes. Um, my telephone with just in the course of a day. I mean, here's interesting. Um, not mentioning names, but a college coach. Um, Vision one, one of our players who's an 11 in the UTR and college coach division one are looking for 13s. You know, maybe they have roster manager where they can only have 12 players, but to have someone who's on your team who's, uh, can break a five minute mile. You know, college coaches, are you good? In the classroom, obviously good on the court. Can you put points on the board for the team? But are you good in the locker room? Get a sense of humor and bring people together, but then are you good in the gym? Are you good on the track? With, uh, um, here's a text from uh, um, a coach that we've known for a long time, wants to bring a group for a boot camp. We don't call it a boot camp, but yeah, if you want to call it a boot camp, uh, emergent camp. Um, here's another coach who, uh, sent us a picture of a young player who's, you know, won a local tournament. We, we stayed away from that on the website. Um, I really think with social media for a young junior, winning the trophy is enough. Let me say that again. Winning the trophy is enough. I would recommend coaches do not put pictures of junior players on their website holding trophies. I do know that, you know, parents have said, well, okay, we're keeping a, a photo album. But then it's not just shared with the family and just take a chill pill. The trophy is enough. Don't need to put, put that on a website. Um, what does it lead to kids having a false understanding of their level loss of perspective, um, choking, um, letting them think they're bigger and better than they are a little humble pie, a little uncle Tony. You know, but it's just, um, you know, unfortunately, it was a great experience in many ways, but I was on a college campus for 10 years and I went through AA with many of my students who became alcoholics. And my dad used to say this, we'd leave the house and um, make the family proud. And but the one thing is to have pride, but don't be proud. And we go, well, what's that mean? Is don't be a peacock. You know, you don't have to show your feathers. And a lot of times when coaches are doing that, they're showing their own feathers. It's like, okay, we have a winner. 12 and under tennis, 14 under tennis. Uh, I just don't think that's right. Uh, here's another, um, uh, you know, visitors here. Uh, a, a father bringing a, a player who's uh, um, seven years old. Well, we already have a player here today who's five years old. Um, because when 
what people need to do is learn a lifestyle. Okay. You, it's really when the parent brings a player that young, the lesson is for the parent. This is what you need to do when you go home. This is how you need to set up your garage. Where are you going to put the mirrors? You know, where are you going to hang the string from the ceiling? You know, um, I do think people listen to our podcast. Thank you the uh, for the support. Hanging a string from the ceiling, piece of tape comes down to your contact point. Okay, number one, you have mirrors up. Number two, number three, you have a poster of the word pitch method. And number four, number five, go on. You have a tripod, you have a camera, you have a practice log. And you are going to do that exercise. It just takes a couple minutes to work on your serve every day. You just did it twice a day, like brushing your teeth. Um, that's, I do get a lot of video sent to me of young kids hitting the ball well, which is great. People out practicing. Um, here's one from a, a college coach. And it's unfortunate that a lot of players, when they get to be a junior in high school, now they want to play college tennis, but they haven't lived their life to play college tennis and their UTR is very low. But I think, okay, could you go in and be a really good project player? Could you go in and, and not hold practice back? Could they give you that opportunity? Could you redshirt? Is there a way for you still to play college tennis, even though you didn't pay your dues as a junior? And, you know, and sometimes it's not that simple. They were poorly taught. Everybody has their own story. They're poorly taught. Uh, late start, bad start. But where there's a will, there's a way. And also, too, is that um, there's so many boys, especially, they're looking to play at a level that, right, it's not attainable at, at that point. Well, okay, maybe maybe you can transfer. Also, too, is that... Um, if you're a, an 8.5 on the UTR, the college coach is talking to you. They have the common decency to be talking to you. Don't, don't tell that college coach, well, I'd like to just be the here for a year. Then I would like to transfer. I think I'm going to bounce up to a 12. Um, with, um, I guess I could mention some names. I already have, uh, I mean, Austin Krychek is playing Davis cup, you know, I mean, we should have him on again. His father should have on again. They've made their car a classroom. You know, they had a, a one of those portable backboards. They were swinging the sock. You know, in the early ages, at age seven, he, he was fortunate that we met him. We I made a video say, "Hey, don't watch this until you come back from the little mo." And you come back from the little mo, you got to change everything. Right next to that is uh, Raven Clausen. He was number one in South Africa came to us and we said, you need to take four to six months off and you're tweaking every shot you have. People say, oh, and you know, that's, that's overload. That's too much. No, it's not. If you make technical tapes and three times minimum, a player watches it, they take notes, they put the notes in logical sequential order and they get in front of the mirror and they process. Um, with, uh, here's an email to, uh, or a text sending to a parent, let your son communicate with the coach. Don't you communicate to the coach. Um, with um, anxiety, you know, people coming to visit, the parents are the ones that have really the anxiety. I do think, okay, 
Uh, we're in a new setting. You know, come check it out the first time. But then depending certainly on the age of the player and such the circumstances, it's a case study. But let kids go on their own. You know, parents, give your kid roots, but also give them wings. And, you know, there's some tough verbs. You know, a lot of times parents don't know it, but they're really, they're suffocating the kid. Is let the kid do some things on their own. You know, trust your kids. You know, it's, well, nutrition. I'm worried about what they're going to eat. They're not going to die. They're, they're going to find the refrigerator. They're not going to go hungry. Uh, will they eat as well? They could. They could even, even eat better in some cases. But, um, you know, that's one thing that the uh, telephone can be used for some positive. Parent could send a child on the road. All I want you to do is send me a text on what you had to eat. That's it. You don't need to get on the phone. I tell parents all the time, I mean, you know, I don't need to know where your child's going and who they're playing. You know, people that get to the point where, you know, in this country, we there is a little chip on the shoulder and we coaches say, well, the USTA cherry picked the player. You put in some hard yards for, and I, and I go back in the 80s. USTA started in player development in 87. You know, you're working with a player and next thing you know, um, the uh, someone in a higher position of authority shows up. Stan Smith, class act. Dave Anderson and I are working with uh, Vince Spadia. He was a great player before we met him. You know, we, he won the Orange Bowl. Um, and next thing you know is Stan Smith, Wimbledon champion, US Open champion. He strolls up to the courts and is talking to Vince. And then uh, shortly after that, you know, we weren't really doing that much with him. Um, it's amazing how many coaches have done things with the USTA over the years. Here's a one you had mentioned name here with uh, Joey Johnson and son Spencer was on last week's podcast. I was honored that I was asked what was my opinion. I said, yeah, I would have him go on a two year mission, serve his church. I'm thinking maturity, 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 grow up, grow up, grow up. And then with that, um, he played his first tournament. You know, the check only had three figures. It was under a thousand dollars, a little under a thousand dollars with, uh, but I, I think we mentioned it, uh, but Steve Campbell, the tennis director at Wintergreen, who went to Tennis Tech, our two-year program where you could get a college degree, and then he worked for Vic Braden. So when it comes to tennis, we would say Steve gets it. And one thing he shared watching Spencer with some people here, he goes, he hasn't really played in two years. You know, brain memory. With... Um, Anniversary, that's something here, is uh, um, trying to have a 50th anniversary for Vic Braden. Had a meeting on that today. Should we call it an anniversary? Call it a reunion. Um, should it be done every year or every two years? And Mike McLaughlin, what a class act. You know, there's uh, not that many, um, many of us that actually work for Vic. Uh, certainly there's a lot of people um, that know Vic via his books and via his uh, videos and such. Um, but, and there's certainly other tennis teachers as well. Here's someone who mentioned the name, uh, John Roddick, talking to him about one of our players, um, somebody, a family, a player I've worked with. 
Then after the family came to me, this is going back almost 10 years. Now a kid's 18. And um, after they came to see me, they, they never went to a pro again. They just worked together as a family. They came to visit us several times. But they studied the content. You have to live the content. You know, with, we tell people, okay, here's a book to read. Watch these tapes. And it was fun to talk to, to John. Um, I don't really know John that well, but I remember watching him play. He was like 11, 12 years old. And there's an older brother, Lawrence, I believe, um, who actually used our content when his son, I think it was J.C. Roddick, very, very young. I did some work for the Roddick Tennis Academy, but Andy Roddick, what great juice. It was great to see him on stage at the U.S. Open. Um, what a great competitor. But if you saw John Roddick play, that's a great big brother. I remember uh, seeing John Roddick in the U.S. Open, and I thanked him for the opportunity to go to his academy. And I said, you know, I've, I coached against you. He said, you remember uh, kids, Clayton Stanley, Chad Clark? I ran that by him today. And he said, yeah, those guys are really good tennis players. And uh, I said, yeah, I asked you about it. And I said, remember, I watched you when you were 11, 11 or 12. He said, oh, boy, victory, victory or death. I mean, you know, um, one story reminds me of another one and, um, with um, asking players, who's the best player you've ever practiced with? And then asking the kid who, um, you know, spent a lot of time with one of my students, taught him how to play, and he said, Fetter. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so you, you practice with Fetter. There's text messages here on, uh, on our broadcast. Keep going down this roll. There's uh, text messages on certainly the match itself. You know, like say, Mevedev, what a great player, such a great fighter. And you just have to look at his positives, the character. You know, I always say listen to his YouTube clips, but he wasn't just Mevedev watching and listening to our uh, our broadcast. No options, you know, with you know parents, what do they want for the kids? Opportunities and options. With um, the um, there's text message, there's notes that people have sent for videos. That uh, this is just going down right in front of me, make a video for a player, tell him, watch it three times, send us notes. And it's really, really, really discouraging. You know, I have a player who's here for the second time with his dad. And I said, you know, my fault first, I don't know. And I said, your fault second, you don't know. We've, we've been moving and kind of upside down. Everybody knows what it's like to move. And said, did you send us notes? And he said, no. And it's like, it's your game. Take ownership. To hear it is to forget it, to write it down, is to remember it, to do it over and over again with, um, here's something that quite a few coaches are interested. I'm up here in the mountains and you know, they want to work with players that I've coached. And I go, that, that's great. That's great. But why don't you coach beginners? You know, instead of, well, I'd like to take these players to tournaments and, you know, or Dave Anderson said on a podcast, you know, the dirty work is teach beginners 
Uh, I spent a lot of time today working with a five-year-old. And, you know, he, dad's brought him here. And like, okay, dad's listening to our podcast. And um, you don't want to go down the road age five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and find out that you know, you've been whacking tennis balls five years with a palm-up serve, Western grip where the butt of the racket's almost hitting your earlobe. And, you know, that's so, so difficult um, when kids don't get a really good start um, with, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just so many different things. With, uh, but yeah, I just think maybe we go to more detail, but the, the interactions we have with uh, people from our network, um, coaches that we've worked with for decades, um, it's just very interesting. Why don't you make some comments off of that and we can say goodnight. What do you got off my telephone? Any thoughts? Comments off your telephone, hey. smash anything. One thing I wanted to mention, just a story that I remember that really from both of the men's players, uh, Djokovic, classic ending speech. He always has a, uh, a message to give to younger players. He always talks about his upbringing, how the less you have, the more you have. And with Medvedev, um, again, if I'm wrong on this, please correct me. But when he was being, when he started becoming a pro, he had major lower back injuries or problems. And he didn't make it very far up the ladder. Well, relatively. He made it some, but he couldn't progress. And at some point, he was trying everything. I mean, he spent all this money trying to figure out what's going on with his back. And um, he found uh, either the doctor, this doctor found him or he found this doctor after just searching for endlessly and through people that are, that told him, sorry, you can't do anything about it. And this doctor helped him made special, uh, special machines that would help target these certain muscles that were weak in his back genetically, I believe. Again, I could be wrong, 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 but this is what I remember. And he just proved everybody wrong. Like everybody in the, in the interview, he said, everybody told me I would never make it to what I wanted to make it to. And he just through grit and you can see it when he plays in his eyes, how, how, how much of a competitor he is. Cause he went through all that and, you know, he stayed the course and he knew, he knew he was going to be great. And so he kept pushing him. I mean, just warriors, these guys, amazing. With Mavidev, and again, hats off to Mavidev. But you listen to his YouTube clips. He uses the word awful. My volleys are awful, but they're getting better. They're better than they used to be. At least I'm trying to volley. So, I mean, it's just a lesson to listen to the guy. Um, one thing back to fundraising, we, we need to do a way, a way better, a way more, I speak English, we need to do a better job this is at the end of the day. We do these at the end of the day with power nap didn't happen today. doesn't happen most days with sharing more content. You know, we have some film from the summer just a few weeks ago. I guess we're, we're into fall now. Um, it'd be fun to organize it and send it to Christina Dell, who's here to send it to her father, to send it to Charlie Passarell. 
you know, Charlie's not on my phone. And Charlie Passerelle, I think people know him as a builder that he built Indian Wells, along with Ray Moore and, you know, Indian Wells is Indian Wells. He, he, he sold it to Larry Ellison, but um, he was taught by Welby Van Horn on four courts at San Juan, Puerto Rico. Welby would say, I was so fortunate to teach him first because he became the best player in America, number one American at one point. And, um, but we have the body balance position. We do it with the hands on the hips and then the hands out in front and then do it with checkpoints with the racket. And, um, you know, that's really, you know, so many things to say about the great base. Um, someone tell me otherwise, but, and again, the, the world's a big place, but I don't know of anyone who taught beginners better than Welby Van Horn. And he was a world-class tennis player. Built backboards, you had to hit the backboard 30 minutes before his lesson. He could see you on the backboard. After the lesson, you would stand in front of his pro shop window. Wasn't fair for girls back then, taught mostly boys. But then if you weren't shadow swinging, you weren't doing it the right way, you'd look over and you'd whack a ball at you. Hell, you can't do that anymore. But um, that that's what we need to do is, um, is, is show more content. If people want to dig through our content, uh, they're going to find Welby Van Horn balance system, but we could do it better. It's okay. This, you don't have to search through tennis intelligence applied, which is a 25 hour course. Someone said, you got to listen to your critics. You got to become your own best critic, but our content is like drinking water from a fire hose. Um, or you go to the biggest buffet in the world. I go, where, where do I turn? And, um, you know, one phone call I saw was a gentleman who wants to make the game like us. He wants to make tennis more accessible and less expensive. And he's going to try to do that through um, club teams on college campuses. And that's been done to a certain level. You know, the PTR, it's like, are there any new ideas under the sun? But when people go forward and they have these ideas, it's like, okay. We just had, okay, 10 chapters, 10 chapters. And I'll get a piece of paper. We'll write these down and we get to sign off. You know, now, like um, the gentleman with fuzzy yellow balls, last name is Hamilton. Um, you know, now, you know, he puts out a work, he puts out a booklet and all you got to do is go to chapter one and you just scan it and you can look at a short video. The technology to, to communicate, but um, one would be the court. You know, you have to teach the realities of the court. You need to know the 19.1, 19.6, 24.2. You need to know, um, you know, I, I tell people, I can't really have a conversation with a high level if you don't know, you know these numbers. If the rules don't allow you to reach over net, but you have 180 degrees, three feet from the net, 130. Um, how many steps it is to the net. You know, you take 78 divided by two is 39, three feet per step, 13 steps to the net. So the court is one thing, not in any order, but then the racket, okay, the, the language, the parts of the racket, racket face, throw to the racket, you know, the butt of the racket. Obviously there's the grip. Um, you know, you could go with some more terminology, racket face open, racket face closed. 
know, enter the student's world. Next one would be grips. You know, on our podcast, Richard Hernandez, um, what's one thing that needs to happen to improve tennis? People need to know the grips. The grips, all the ramifications that goes with the grips. And, you know, some kid, again, Coco Goff, uh, we could speculate and say, well, Alcaraz, who didn't play very well in the semifinals, but he's 20 years old, he's in the semifinals. He, he's a gift from God. But, you know, he's missing wide on the forehand side. Uh, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. But, you know, tennis players from yesteryear would look at it and go, you need a force kid. You don't need to give away the net. You need to pressure people. And he can volley. Um, so we got court, racket, grips, and then body balance. Body balance position. You know, then next thing, okay, we're just chapter five, we're at checkpoints. Okay, the shape of the swing, what's not taught anymore? The ready position. You go to a tournament, most kids don't have the ready position. So, okay, look at Djokovic, the racket centered, it's in a neutral position. Um, you know, do people teach a unit turn now? Do they teach, okay, the, talk about the backswing, talk about the contact, talk about follow through? That language is almost gone. It's just, you know, then, then so you're halfway through. Say, so, okay, that's quite a bit. But then when it comes down to training, you know, just practice as a chapter. Solo practice. You know, what drills can you do on your own? Um, static balance, dynamic balance. You know, what do you do standing still in front of a mirror? What do you do in your driveway? People don't practice in their driveway. They don't pick the racket up. They put it in that big fancy shoulder bag. That's it. They, you tell people, here are the routines you do. They don't do them. I mean, it's like, no. Um, parents, boy, it'd be great to get a flip phone. The uh, kids are four or five hours of time on the phone. They're like walking around with a TV. I can remember my father saying, you know, you don't need to be watching that TV. Turn that idiot box off. That's what it was called. You know, that term's gone away. I mean, that's what the telephone is. It's an idiot box. People are just killing brain cells. It's like, you want to be a tennis player? That's the enemy. The telephone's the enemy. But you can go on and on with practice. Um, with seven, eight, nine, ten, um, to, to you think of practice, you just say, okay, we are going to have a form tournament. We're going to have a form tournament. You know, who has the best looking form? Um, at, you know, efficient strokes are aesthetically appealing. With the next is have a target tournament. You know, when we make a tournament, when we, when we start doing a drill to the quadrants, what we call the tiebreaker test, and we do it with everybody in the group, they get so excited. But to do that on your own, put the ropes out, hit over, you know, the 10 and under line, which is, you know, you got 18 feet from the service line to the baseline, hit over, hit, hit over that nine foot barrier. Um, the, um, you know, chapter nine and 10, again, this is just random, but really with, um, number nine is fitness and more fitness. Just fitness and more fitness, you know, start your day. You know, a lot of boys, especially, they like to be in the gym. You know, it's not so painful to lift weights, but it's painful to run. 
you know, so many kids would be, they'd be wise to run cross country. So fitness and just tons of fitness. You know, we do uh, the animal kingdom. Okay, on the baseline, you know, the Harry Hopman, the kangaroos, but bear walk to the net, bear walk backwards to the net. Go to YouTube and look up animal kingdom exercises. With that, um, you know, we do the caterpillar, the inchworm. You just know right there, kid, you got no core. Uh, we do the frog jump. And, you know, you, you just look around and go, I'm not really very explosive. You tell an athlete, you tell an athlete by how much they jump. And then very quickly, I can reread these and we'll sign off. Rinse and repeat. Okay. Doing dishes. Most kids, I don't know if they've ever, ever even done, done dishes. I can tell stories about kids putting their hand in the sink. They're 15 years old. They're putting their hand in the sink. You just know they've never done any chores. Mom and dad, sorry. First 15 years, you blew it. They put your kids to work. They need to help out. Um, but rinse and repeat is character is that, no, you gotta do the same thing over and over again. Tom Brady, embrace the boredom, all the mind vitamins. So I'll read these off and then you can close this, uh, smorgasbord, uh, podcast. We've talked a little about fundraising. We've talked about our broadcast. We've talked a little bit about stats, a little bit about this and that with the US Open. We went through our, my phone, which is just random. Um, but I do think, you know, okay, this is what's happening. We're connected with people that are, um, you know, doing A-okay in tennis. They're after it. Uh, but anyway, this right here, 10 chapters, the court. You know, what do, what do kids get as far as a grade? What do they know about the court? A is excellent. F is not. In, in, my, in our world, it's either an A or an F. Either you know or you don't know. You Either you know something about the tennis court or you don't. Sorry. Well, I know a little bit. And they don't. They've been playing tennis their whole life. It's like they, the line from Moneyball. It's amazing. You can play a sport for your whole life and know so little about it. The racket is probably the easiest one. Okay. This is the racket face. You know, when you talk to a beginner, okay, they don't know the terminology. But that's, that's a chapter I think almost everybody gets an A on. But on the other hand, when they're playing, they don't know whether the racket face is open or closed. And then also with the racket, they don't know why the racket should face should be open or closed. Um, with um, grips, a grip of a lifetime. You're 18 years old, kid. Well, you're an 8.5 on the UTR. Um, you're 16 years old. You're a 8.5 on the UTR, whatever. You're young, double your life. Go for it. Here's the science. Here's the logic. Nothing to compromise, nothing to negotiate. Your level's too low. Just shut up and do it. I love Nike for the, logo, the slogan, just do it. There shouldn't be any other slogans. Just do it. There's some great t-shirts. I wouldn't mind being in the t-shirt business coming up with slogans. You see my shirt here? You know what company this is? No. Hydrogen. And you know what their logo is? Or yeah. their motto? Do it better. There you go. <laughs> I always thought it was funny. Clever marketing. Just do it, do it better, do it more. Um, body balance. Most kids hit balls, they're off balance. Their toss is way out of whack. They're falling over. Um, that's what I love about Mevedev. I mean, from a technical standpoint, he's almost falling over, but he's making shots. 
that guy is determined. That guy has desire. Um, checkpoints, you know, that, that really gets into the nuts and bolts. Practice, three secrets of tennis, practice, practice, practice. And you've got to be a practice animal. You have to love practice. You have to be, you, you have to understand if you don't love practice, you're not going to be very good, period. Just, it's all about practice. Um, forum tournament, with the forum tournament, I didn't write it down here, but you're teaching, um, when you're teaching technique, you're teaching tactics. When you're teaching people, okay, this is an approach shot. You approach the net so you can play a volley. And, you know, it is true that you have to show people, Vandermeer is very good at that. Let me show you what it looks like before we break it down in progressions, before I um, break it down into small, you know, learnable pieces. Let me show you the whole picture first. A target tournament. Can you hit the target? Vandermeer. Yeah, you need three people. You need the feeder, two players, put a cone down. I'm going to feed you 10 forehands. And the other person gets 10 balls and they mark down where the 10 shots land. I mean, with tennis, scariest thing is you're being compared to the person on the other side of the net. And it's just a tragedy, not a comedy of unforced errors. But it's okay. It's competitive. Someone's going to win. And, but the unforced errors are, you know, 80% plus. It's, 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 I'm talking grassroots level tennis. Um, maybe this should have been first. Fitness, fitness, yes, fitness. And with fitness, that means other sports. I, I didn't know that when I started playing tennis, but having played ice hockey, you know, it's like Djokovic grew up at the bottom of a ski hill. You got to guess, well, the kid probably could ski a little bit. Federer's from Switzerland. Yeah, he probably could ski a little bit. You know, you could look up Yannick Center. He definitely could ski a little bit. National champion. But playing other sports, can you catch and can you throw? You've seen me do some things in the the time you've been here, the Billy Jean King shortstop drill. You just take balls and just take the racket and, and they hit a groundy. They put, put them on one side of the court and they got to run to the other corner. They just got to catch it. Then could they catch it and, and then turn and be in that third base position? I mean, I, I played baseball. But we, Mark Hamill, kid I grew up with, says, yeah, but we never practiced batting. And uh, the only reason, I, I thought I could catch a baseball because I played all the street hockey and, and when, you're a, when you're a forward, or defenseman you play street hockey, you always want to be the goalie. And the goalie always wants to be forward. So you, you're in there and people are just blasting tennis balls at you and you you develop some hand-eye. Um, like, where, where does that come from? The book, uh, Range, the the generalist is better than the specialist. Coco Goff, thank you, thank you. Wake up America, become an athlete. Um, but rinse and repeat, I mean, I tell stories about kids picking weeds. I could write a book on parents. I've learned so much from parents, how to do it and how not to do it. For every player I've met, fortunately, I've pretty much met two parents. And I know one mom, her kids would complain, they had to go outside and take one of those little grocery bags and fill it up, they'd have to pull weeds. I just heard you complain, here's the bag, outside. Of course, in certain parts of the year, you can't do that. You gotta come up with a, another, another solution. But in a place like Florida, you can go pick weeds year round. But rinse and repeat. Um, you got to do it over and over and over again. Um, all right, your time to sign us off here. Uh, two things I wrote down was mental, emotional side. That could be a chapter. Of course, that's many things are connected. Stuff with, you know, how, how dedicated you are to the fitness, nutrition side, 
things like that where you can develop your your mindset but that's one thing one another thing is um a line you said which is either you know or you don't a or f and you know it reminds me of my degree um first thing i thought of at ucsd computer science where you're taking some classes where it's like <laughs> you can't make make something up and get an answer it's kind of like a they ask you a question it's you know it or you don't it's like you it's either it's worth half a grade and you have to do three pages of calculations and get an answer and if you don't know it you can't even start and it's a horrible feeling give me the uh letters for your school again u c s d university of california san diego u c s d i'm going to come up with a better acronym for that yeah <laughs> i knew i i should say i know i've looked it up before i once heard a comedian had an acronym for every state. I mean, Massachusetts, Mississippi, it was pretty impressive. Only one I remember was Iowa, idiots out wandering around. <laughs> UCSA. But I think also too with mentally emotional is I think there's too much sitting around, too many, too much consultation. I think a lot of pros, okay, let's meet, let's sit down. You know, the parents, let's sit down um, with uh, fitness, fitness, uh, mental toughness, emotional toughness. Uh, it's like when you train people for, you know, what they do with soldiers is, you know, we're going to sit around and talk about it. You know, they're going to put them through hell and back. And, um, and when great players, great athletes get together, they don't talk about the championship. They talk about how hard they work. But I think the mental, emotional, certainly you can add that to the list. But, you know, you need to check up from the neck up. Rod, Roger Crawford, you, you know, you need to, you need to be mentally fit. You know, one, you have this opportunity to play this game, you know, appreciation, Peter Burwash. You come in the world with nothing, you leave with nothing, you appreciate everything in between. So attitude and effort um, through fitness, you're going to find out what kind of attitude they have. You're going to find out what type of effort. You know, fitness, one of the best places to start with fitness is ball pickup. We're picking the balls up this way right now. It's one and one. And it's not three and three, and, but you're running, you're running backwards. You're, you know, you're doing lunges. Um, you know, we had a contest the other day, um, four players picking up balls. And I had a coach helping me, a gal from South Africa said, okay, we're charting. She's right there with the tally system. One player tanked, just totally tanked. And it's like, no, this, this is spirited. Who's going to, who's going to pick up the most balls? And you know, the really competitive people, I mean, they, they, they just have the juice. They competed everything. They competed everything. But anyway, some leftovers. Hopefully people got something out of this uh, podcast. Um, I'm actually a little bit uh, bewildered sometimes when people say, I really like those podcasts. I go, really? You got to be kidding me. All right, your turn. What do you mean right in the bathroom wall? We'll end this thing. What do you got? Uh, the U.S. Open is still on my mind. The less you have, the more you have. With that, that phrase from Djokovic that he says usually at a, after he wins a major. Uh, I love that phrase. It's that's amazing. Bi that's biblical. Everybody, Don Meyer. We had a podcast on Don Meyer, the late Don Meyer. You could YouTube Don Meyer, basketball coach, biblical teaching. Leave the locker room cleaner than you found it. Um, just, you know, Jim Verdict. Don't you want to get 1% better with... In society, you know, it's not pointing the finger at parents today. It's it's society. Um, 
things have changed. You know, we had the podcast with Steve Robertson on Gen Z. Um, I could remember just going in the house, youngest of six. So the youngest is asked to do a lot of things. Like I had no one to handle mowing the lawn down to. No little brother to take over the job with. Um, but, you know, now it's unheard of. It's, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I grew up, I would say privileged. There was not a silver spooner of it. I would come in the house and just hope that my mother wouldn't say, Stevie, uh, why don't you go outside, take the clothes off the line. But then it's like, but before you go, take the clothes that are in the washer and hang them up. It, it just goes, and then if you would fold them, you know, I just wanted in and out, in and out. And, you know, so you, you really can't blame kids today with, with things that have gone away, but they have gone away with, um, and then, you know, I, you know, I think about people that, um, that came before me. I mean, I'm going to, I'm heading towards 70 and, and, uh, yeah, it's just the easier you have it, the worse you have it. And, you know, I think a Raven Classic covering the United States. And uh, one of my sons said to me one time, he said, everybody, every, every, every family has three cars. I'm just shaking my head. And uh, Raven Classen, he was just blown away. And he came to live with us when he was 18 years old. He couldn't believe how many kids turned 16 and they were driving a car, driving their own car. He was just, and I remember he loved cars. He even, there was a, a place that like was right by where we lived on Friday night where you could go and look at these, you know, such and such cars. And uh, with but people just take it for granted. Just take it for granted. Um, you know, I can go back and go, yeah, I was a perennial tennis bum in Boca Raton, Florida, back in the 70s. I used to take a bus up to Delray, take lessons from Ed Foster. And I used to tell people, yeah, well, the only person in Boca rides a bus, you know, city buses. And, um, the, uh, yeah, this, you know, and I think that's where the Americans are so privileged to, to be here in this country, but, you know, kids from other places, um, again, you said it, if you have less, you have more. Okay. Yvonne, thank you. Listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Podcast 161. It's in the books. Good night. Adios. Adios.